if you grew up playing sports of any kind, there's a good chance that at one time or another, even if you were the very worst person on the team, you dreamed or at least imagined what it would be like to represent your country in the Olympic Games. You thought about it anyway. I mean, you probably already know that these uh, people who are chosen, who are deemed worthy to represent their country on the Olympic stage, they've trained for most of their lives to get to this place, right? Sweating, uh, lifting, suffering the loss of normal life, uh, normal diet, normal relationships, pushing themselves to the very end of human endurance in order to be one of those who is chosen among hundreds, probably thousands of people for this honor. And should they ever get that phone call, that, that letter that says, hey, you've been chosen, you're on the team, they don't say, all right, well, good, I'm going to stop training now. Got the team, I'm good now. No, they, they probably train even harder now because now they realize, hey, this, this dream that I had of serving my country, representing my country, it's not just a dream, it's going to be a reality. If you've ever watched... Uh, the Olympics on TV, you probably know, one of, my, one of my favorite parts to watch, along with the events, is the behind-the-scenes stories, you know, where they interview the different athletes, they talk about their lives, how they got there. And as you listen, almost invariably, the, the different people will speak about someone in their life. Uh, maybe it's a coach, a parent, uh, a sibling, someone who, whose dedication and bravery in the face of suffering was the inspiration for them. They, they looked to their example of beating these crazy odds and it inspired them to want to work hard and work to the place where they're now at this place, representing their country. And when they describe those people, they'll often use terms like, a, they're, they're my inspiration, they're my model, sometimes even they're my hero. Well, in this passage we're looking at this morning in Acts, it gives us a remarkably similar behind-the-scenes kind of story of the early church as we read about what happened in the lives of the apostles, some of the first men and women, or at least men here in this case, the apostles, who'd been chosen, who'd been deemed worthy to represent Jesus and the early church here before the religious rulers. But in another sense, our passage takes that road to the Olympic story and kind of actually flips it on its head. It doesn't follow the same rules of what we're used to hearing because, first of all, for the apostles here, as well as everyone after them, you and I, everyone who's ever been chosen, deemed worthy to represent Jesus, to be witnesses before him, the worthiness to be those witnesses isn't something that they've trained for. They didn't work really hard and just build up enough strength to the place where they could be worthy. Worthiness for them and for us is something that was achieved for them and then granted to them. They were made to be worthy. They, didn't, they weren't worthy and then they were witnesses. They were made worthy. Second way that this is different is that worthiness in the Olympics, that's seen as the celebrated end of suffering. I work hard, I overcome adversity, and then I become worthy. And yet here, particularly in verse 41, what, what seems to be different here is that suffering itself seems to be the celebrated end of worthiness and that's most of us don't know what to do with that. that that's that's really hard to understand and even absorb it all because first of all just as North Americans generally speaking we are a suffering averse culture no thank you 
Uh, I'll skip that if I can. I mean, every uh, new product, every technological advance is all geared towards uh, our dedicated pursuit of avoiding suffering at all costs. Beyond that, when you think about it, it's, it's also the fact that we don't want, we, we, we think that suffering is the one exception to the rule when it comes to our, uh, earning our Christian faith, growing in Christian faith. Every other thing that we look at in life, training for the Olympics, graduation, uh, uh, learning an instrument, we know, okay, yes, suffering is going to be involved. It's going to take training, work, all these things. Somehow, when it comes to our faith, we think, well, no, no, that should be the exception. I, I, should, just, I should just have Christian maturity, bam, dropped in my lap. So we, we don't even understand suffering and what it should look like. So because of that, we may even look at our passage this morning annoyed. You might be skeptical as we read this, thinking, why isn't God taking better care of his witnesses as they obey him, as they're doing what he asks them to do? This seems like terrible employee retention here. He should be watching out for them a lot better. We don't understand what's going on here. So in order to help us understand what in the world God is up to, why the, the apostles could rejoice after being beaten, and what role suffering as witnesses has in our own lives today? I want to look at this passage quickly, just in two ways. I want to show you considering the cost of worthiness and then following the path of worthiness. Considering the cost, following the path of worthiness. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to Acts 5, beginning at verse 17. Follow along with me as we learn together what it means to be worthy to suffer for Jesus' name in our own lives and witness today. Let's talk first of all about considering the cost of worthiness. Considering the cost of worthiness. Some of you know uh, my wife. She couldn't be here today as our youngest daughter was sick. Some of you know that she grew up loving horses. She rode horses, rode in competitions, show jumping, all that. My oldest daughter has taken on that love, unfortunately. And it's, it's not unfortunate. We, uh, so we often go down around the Southlands. We love to look at the horses and see what's going on down there, different events. So we were at the riding club uh, a few weeks ago as um, they were setting up one of these cross-country courses. Uh, if you don't know, cross-country is an outdoor uh, riding event where as they ride through a field, they jump over those uh, logs and different obstacles. It's called cross-country uh, event. And I was really interested to learn. I saw these different groups of girls walking around the course. They walked right up to the hurdles. They were taking notes. And I said to Sarah, what's going on? And she said, what happens is before the event, a coach, a riding instructor will walk the course with the riders. They're going to show them ahead of time, hey, these are where the obstacles are. This is what it's going to look like. So they can mentally prepare, okay, what do I need to do when I'm on my horse and I'm actually riding the course? Well, Jesus, uh, the night before he went to the cross, he's giving his disciples some final instructions. John's gospel actually gives us a, a quite an extensive view of what some of those instructions were, some of which were these words from Jesus in John 15. Listen, he said, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Now, what is Jesus doing there? Wasn't he, in a sense, walking the course with his disciples? 
helping them to prepare proper expectations ahead of time in their minds before they encountered those difficulties so they wouldn't be thrown off by them, they wouldn't be uh, distracted or discouraged by them when they come. In another place, Jesus says plainly, look guys, if you, if you follow me, if you come after me, there's going to be suffering involved. That's going to be part of the cost of following me. It's going to involve denying yourself. It's going to be a, taking up a cross of your own. That's going to be part of what it means. Basically helping them to understand the inevitable costs that would be involved in following him now that he had qualified them to be worthy of being his witnesses. And I believe in much the same way here in, in Acts, when Luke gives us these descriptions right now, particularly chapters 4 through 7, there's some really hard stuff that this early church goes through. I think Luke is doing the exact same thing. As he shows us some of these difficulties in the early church, he's trying to walk the course with his readers then as well as today to help us understand, give us a realistic picture ahead of time of what some of the costs will be involved in being witnesses for Jesus. We can take, we get to see some of what those costs could be. So we'll look quickly at some of what, what they are. First of all, verse 17 shows us the first cost. Look with me there. Now the verses above tell us that as the early church is growing, uh, it says people are afraid to join with the apostles. They don't want to publicly join with them, probably because they've heard about what we looked at last week, Ananias and Sapphira. They're kind of scared by that. Rightly so, and so they're not publicly wanting to join, and yet the church is exploding. Men and women are, are piling into the church, and people are getting healed, lives are transformed. It's incredible. But look at the reaction of the religious rulers to this. Verse 17, And the high priest and, his, and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Filled with jealousy. So the, the first cost of worthiness for the apostles is experiencing the jealousy of the religious rulers. Their jealousy. Now, maybe you got a nice, soft, squishy heart, and you'd say, well, come on. That's hard. I mean, you know, they used to be the team that everyone wanted to be a part of, and, and people are leaving their team. They're, they're moving to somebody else, someone new, and that, that could be hard. And I would say, okay, sure, but look what they're, look what they're moving to. People, lives being transformed by the gospel. Men and women praising God, worshiping Him. Uh, uh, lives being changed morally as well as physically. Uh, people are being healed. Demons cast out. All this stuff is going on. Passionate love for God. Societal ills being changed. Poverty, homelessness being cared for. It sounds a lot like the kingdom of God being grown, doesn't it? And yet in their jealous reaction the religious rulers reveal actually they're not at all about seeing God's kingdom grow or seeing broken social structures redeemed all they really care about is maintaining their position at the top of the ladder they want to do that at all costs that's that's what they really care about and listen in our own lives and in our own churches God help us if we ever get stuck like that if we ever forget that, that what God has called us to is not to build our own tiny little kingdoms or, or to build even the kingdom of Dunbar Heights Baptist Church. We've been called to build the kingdom of God. Period. That's the only kingdom God has ever called us to build, the only kind of disciples He's ever called us to make. Second cost we see in verse 18. Look with me there now. Verse 18. Now, just like back in chapter 4, the apostles, they get arrested. Spending another night in prison, because apparently these guys can't meet at night. 
spending another night in jail for being witnesses to Jesus, which if you didn't know, at this time and history and place, is not like going to prison in Canada. This is actually really hard. Okay, it's not like prison in Canada where the only difference between going to prison and going to a hotel is that prison in Canada, they, they keep your room key. They don't let you hold on to it. That's the only real difference. It's hard. They're, they're spending another night in jail just for witnessing to Jesus. Verse 27 and following, we see the third cost. The apostles, they're arrested once again. Now this time it's more gentle and nice. But now they're made to stand trial before the Sanhedrin and the full assembly of elders. They're put on trial here, and now, as the high priest reminds him in verse 28, this is now a second offense. It's in the first time here. They're now repeat offenders. They have violated a direct command not to speak or teach in Jesus' name, which means the cost here isn't just about the loss of time or the hassle of legal trials. This is much more serious now. Stakes are way higher now, and actually they're so high, the religious rulers, we read, they're looking to end this once and for all. Put these ringleaders to death. Let's just shut this down now. Finally, verse 40. Look here, we see there's also a physical cost to their witness. Along with being warned again not to speak in Jesus' name, now they're flogged, which... Luke, I mean, it seems to just mention it and just kind of pass on and be like, yeah, they were flogged and then off they went. But we just need to stop for a second and consider because that's not most of our experience, I'd like to think. But in this time, place, and in history, flogging involved being stripped to the waist, tied to a post, and then struck 39 times with a leather strap, three leather straps attached to a handle. Two, two blows to the back, one to the chest, and only 39 because they started to find out if you whipped someone more than 40 times, it started to kill them. So they're literally beaten within an inch of their life, which means that when they left the Sanhedrin that day, unbelievably rejoicing like they'd won a victory because they'd been able to, they'd been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus' name, they sure didn't look like victors. They looked like victors at all. They looked like Rocky after one of his fights. You know, it looks like his face had been a punching bag for 12 rounds. They were victors, but they, they sure weren't patting each other on the back. Now, yes, absolutely. In every one of these cases in the passage we saw, every time the apostles face one of these costs, God's there with them by His Spirit. He's giving them words to say when they're Standing on trial, he's, he's providing angels to free them from prison. He's even working through the Pharisees like Gamaliel to free them from a death sentence. But the point I want to emphasize to each of us this morning is that in each and every one of those cases, they still had to pay the cost. Costs still had to be paid, which I think is exactly why Jesus wanted to walk the course with them before they ever came to these costs. So they'd be able to expect them. They'd be able to know that this is the part of what it meant to be worthy to be his witnesses. And I think it's also why Jesus didn't tell them ahead of time, hey, some of these costs I'm going to deliver you from. He didn't tell them that. He just said there will be costs. He didn't say, hey, some of these you're probably going to be reimbursed after you've paid. He just said there will be costs. Because I think he did that because if you go into a situation knowing you're going to have to pay... You approach it differently, don't you? 
You, you approach it with a determination and a resoluteness that you wouldn't have if you thought, maybe there's a chance I might not have to pay. That sort of takes the fire out of you if you think, I might not have to pay. La- ladies in here, if you were told one in every thousand women in childbirth would experience no pain, no epidural, and no pushing, wouldn't that, wouldn't that mess with you when it came time to actually give birth? Because you'd be wondering, well, am I going to be one of them? Maybe, this, maybe I'll be one of the ones that doesn't have to suffer. Now, I don't know what that cost feels like, obviously, but having witnessed it twice, I, I get the impression you can't run at that wall at half speed and make it over. You know, you, you have to come in and think, okay, this is happening, and it's going to be hard, but I'm going to make it through. You just have to accept the fact, I'm going to have to pay this cost, and it allows you to go through it because you know it's coming. So Jesus here, he lovingly holds back that information but tells them there will be costs. There's going to be costs involved in following me. So it gives them the resolve. It gives them the resolve to make it through because they're expecting that they're going to come. And he tells them before the starting pistol goes and the race begins, these costs are here. But listen, all the while, at the same time with the hopeful promises attached, surely I am with you always even to the end of the age. Or, blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. The question we need to answer ourselves this morning today is, as you consider these costs that we've looked at, which, come on, honestly are way greater than probably anything we're going to face in Canada today. As you consider those costs that we're looking at here, are you willing to pay the costs that you may experience in being a witness for Jesus? Have you thought about what they might be and have you said ahead of time, no, no, I'm willing to pay that no matter what it costs me. Maybe it's going to mean embarrassment. Embarrassment if someone's like, so you believe what? You really believe that? Maybe it's going to mean rejection by family and loved ones and friends. Maybe it's going to mean ridicule from colleagues and co-workers who can't believe you follow these fairy tales. If you consider those costs ahead of time and said, no, no, Jesus is worth it to me. So much so that you could even be able to rejoice when that happens. Rejoice when you suffer that way because you're being counted worthy to suffer disgrace for Jesus' name. It's not going to look the same, but there are costs involved even in our cushy North American existence. Are you willing to pay them? And we've talked about some strategies to do that. A couple weeks ago, we talked about considering the bigness of our sovereign creator, God, as one way we can find boldness to pay those costs. Another is to remember the the blessings that Jesus clearly promises us. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You will be blessed when you face costs like this when you suffer for my name both in this life and the life to come but I think what we're seeing here in our passage today along with those things it's just the apostles resolved dedication to pay whatever costs because they came into the race expecting them they'd walked the course and they would thought ahead of time what's it going to cost me and they said yes I'm willing to pay Jesus being your witness it's worth it so they weren't surprised when it came And as you consider the costs of worthiness yourself, I believe all those things together can help you and I now as we 
have that, so we can have that same resolve, dedication. When we think ahead, we plan, and we resolve ourselves, I will pay the cost now that Jesus has made me worthy through his sacrifice on my behalf. Or maybe you'd hear all that and you'd still want to ask, okay, there's no question. What we're looking at here, they, they, they had re- this resolved uh, ambition and, and focus to, to pay the cost, whatever it is. But what I don't understand is that verse 41 part. I can't understand how in the world they could be rejoicing for getting beaten. Endure, it, endure the cost, sure, pay it, but rejoice? Celebrate being flogged 39 times? What's going on? That, that doesn't make the apostles sound awesome. It makes them sound either insane or like sadists of some kind. What, how is this supposed to help us? Well, in order to help us understand how and why they could do this, I'm going to give you what I believe is the answer from our text, and then I'll try to explain it here in our final point. What I see as the reason of how and why the apostles could rejoice in this suffering, in this persecution, is that in the very same way that the miracles, uh, the empowered speech before the Sanhedrin, thousands of men and women coming to faith in Christ, in the same way all that good stuff confirmed for them, they really were obediently walking in the path of their master Jesus. It showed them we, we, we really are being his witnesses, so too did this persecution and the resulting suffering show them, reveal to them that they really were following in Jesus' steps. The Spirit really was empowering their witnesses. Why? Because remember, Jesus had told them, when you are my witnesses, these things are going to happen. You will experience these costs. So when they start paying them, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a bad thing. They're saying, hey, this shows us we really are being his witnesses. We're doing it. It's the same way as like when, when you do a really hard leg workout at the gym or maybe you go on a hike and then you wake up and for the next two days you can't hardly walk. It, it, it's, it hurts, but it shows you, okay, I really was working those muscle groups I was trying to work. That's, what they're, that's why they're able to rejoice. They've had this incredible, inspiring example in front of them as they walked with Jesus for three years, they learned from him. And so now, as they seek to follow in Jesus' example, fulfill the calling he gave him, every victory and every suffering that comes as a result of following Jesus is a confirmation that they really are being his witnesses. I think that's the only reason that any of us could ever rejoice in things like this. Now, that's not our experience. I, I don't... I don't know about you, but I'm not old enough to have ever walked with Jesus, been taught by him uh, uh, bodily. Uh, I wasn't around for that. So you might be thinking, well, that's good for them, but how does that help me today? Well, I think the answer is found in simply this, following the same path that these pioneers of the church followed, following the path they followed, which was what? They followed the example. They followed Jesus. If we follow that same example ourselves and then look for the same results they did, blessing and persecution, that's going to show us how we too can be following and walking in the path of worthiness. So that's what we're going to look at now, following the path of worthiness. Lots of places I think we could go to discover this path. The apostles cleared as they followed Jesus, the true pioneer of the church. But I want to focus our attention where the apostles' attention was focused, on Jesus. 
on Jesus. Because I think if we clearly see the example that they were following, then we're also going to be able to find the path that they were following. So, I think we see their focus most clearly in this exchange that they have when they're on trial before the religious leaders. Verse 27 through 32. So, look up to that part of the passage with me. 27 through 32. Now, a part of this interchange I find kind of funny, actually, because verses 28 and 29, uh, the religious leaders, they come in and all like, hey, didn't we tell you already? We told you not to do this. What are you doing? And then the apostles are like, well, listen, didn't we tell you we weren't going to do it? We told you we couldn't obey you. We actually directly said we're not going to obey you. So I'm not sure where the surprise factor is coming in for you. We actually literally told you we wouldn't obey you. But the key, the key to this entire passage and the whole exchange here that goes on here is in a single verse and it's actually a single word from a single verse look first of all at verse 30 look what they say they say 29 we we must obey God rather than men verse 30 the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree now look at verse 31 God exalted him that is Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior prince and Savior. Now, you see their, their focus is clearly on Jesus. Jesus is the one that they are focused in on. And the way they describe him is with these two words, Prince and Savior. Now, that word Savior, soter in the Greek, that, that's used all over the New Testament to describe Jesus, to talk about him uh, and the way that he is the one who has rescued us. He's rescued mankind, saved us from the penalty of death that we all deserve for our sin. But that other word, Prince, is not Actually, it's only used four times in the whole New Testament. Twice here in Acts and then twice in the book of Hebrews. Each time referring directly to Jesus. And that word for prince, archegos, in the Greek, is translated a few different ways depending on the context. Obviously, prince is one of them. It's also translated as author, founder, leader. But in the Greco-Roman culture of which uh, the, these Jews were absolutely immersed in. I mean, they're, they're living under Roman rule, and with Greece, is, is, their power is absolutely being uh, pushed as well. In this Greco-Roman culture, there was also another common usage for this same word, archegos, literally arch-ego. Do you know what it was? Hero. Common usage for this term in this time period hero. In fact, this is the word the Greeks used to describe the uh, half-god, half-mortal Hercules. He was called the Archegos. In his book, After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre notes that in Greco-Roman culture, when they were raising children, seeking to teach them uh, virtues, morals, self-esteem, they didn't teach them in classes, they didn't teach them explicitly. You know what they did? They created these hero myth stories, gods who had these uh, virtues, had these abilities, and they used them as stories. They taught them the stories and said, hey, hey, don't you want to be courageous in the face of adversity like Hercules was? Hey, hey, don't, don't be like Narcissus or you're going to get trapped looking at your own reflection. They, they taught them how they wanted them to live by giving them these hero myth stories, which means actually that uh, the apostles here, they predated C.S. Lewis by about 2,000 years when he said, do you remember, Jesus is the one true myth to which all other myths point. 
But you see what this means and how significant it is that as the apostles are defending themselves before the Sanhedrin, they use this word here. In their behind-the-scenes interview of how it was I got to this place, they point to Jesus, the risen and exalted Savior and Hero, which means they're presenting Jesus as both the one who has accomplished their salvation in His death and resurrection, as well as the Hero, the, the example that they're seeking to pattern their lives after. I want to be just like my Hero. I want to follow in the steps that He walked so that I might know the life that he had, as well as the exaltation that he had in his suffering. I see this as the reason the apostles could rejoice, not in suffering in general, but in this particular suffering for Jesus' name. That's what they were rejoicing in, that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name, because they saw Jesus, their hero's example, as one of a suffering servant. One who accomplished the salvation of the world through his sufferings. Which meant as they endured these sufferings themselves from the religious leaders, which Jesus had told them ahead of time were coming, they saw themselves as following directly in the path of their hero. And if God had restored and so highly exalted Jesus in his obedient sufferings, they believed he could also restore and exalt them as they followed his example. I mean, isn't that exactly what... Peter said years later in one of his letters to the churches, stating this, If you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, they were immersed in this culture. I believe this is also the way that you and I today can both count the cost and follow the path of worthiness and and truly have joy in that. Actually have joy as we seek to be witnesses for the one who's made us worthy. I think we can do that, first of all, by understanding and accepting, first of all, that whatever the cost may be, that we may be willing to pay it, and that we would be witnesses for Jesus in this life, not to make us worthy, but as a willing, joyful sacrifice to the one who gave up everything in order to make us worthy. We're not earning worthiness by suffering for his sake. It's a joyful sacrifice to him because it cost him his very life in order to make us worthy. Secondly, by understanding and accepting that persecution from or being opposed in our witness by those who are opposed to Jesus does not mean that God has abandoned us. But it means it's a sign, it's a clear sign, along with blessings, that we are following in the path of our example, of our hero, Jesus Christ, when we experience suffering and persecution for his name. The apostles understood this, which is why I believe they could rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. And and just like them, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who the book of Hebrews calls the Archegos, the hero and perfecter of our faith. As we fix our eyes on him, who for the joy set before him, which was redeeming us, endured the cross, scorning its shame, surely focusing on that. Just like the apostle of Paul said, will allow us to joyfully suffer the loss of all things for the sake of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord. Let's pray.